This is Under Review, a podcast about rethinking humanities graduate education, a collaboration of the University of California Humanities Research Institute and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere. I'm June Key, a recent comparative literature PhD graduate from the University of California, Irvine. And I'm Lauren Burrell-Cox, a recent English PhD graduate from the University of Florida. We believe that discussions of career diversity should not only consider careers beyond the university, but also think through structural problems within the university. Each episode, we speak with experts about issues surrounding prestige, labor, contingency, and diverse postdoctoral pathways. It's time to put graduate education under under review. Given the crisis of declining student enrollments and tenure-track jobs, what is the role of scholarly organizations in facilitating systemic change? This episode, we speak with Dr. Joy Connolly about her role as president of the American Council of Learned Societies, where she works on fellowship design, change acceleration, and creating spaces for students, faculty, and administrators to craft a more sustainable future for the humanities. But first, a job ad that asks for too much and gives too little. A prestigious R1 University seeks a successful candidate that should be willing to contribute to any of our following programs, including underwater basket weaving, pickleball, and kicking the can down the road. The course load is a 10-10. Applications must include statement of purpose, current CV, syllabi for six proposed courses, teaching philosophy, research statement, including second and third book projects, diversity statement, and five letters of reference. Applicant must have PhD in hand. This is an unpaid adjunct position. The compensation is the experience and CV building opportunity. What are you waiting for? Apply today. Okay. All right. Well, welcome to Under Review, Dr. Connolly. Thank you for coming on. So would you mind introducing yourself and your current role? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm glad to join you today. My name is, as you said, Joy Connolly. I'm happy and honored to serve as president of the American Council of Learned Societies. That's a role that I took on in the summer of 2019. I had about eight months before we converted from in-person to remote work, and I'm very grateful to have had a chance to spend some in-person time with my colleagues before we switched to remote. Uh, Before that, I was uh, president, acting president of the Graduate Center at CUNY, uh, a a role I took on uh, having served as provost at the Graduate Center at CUNY uh, for a couple of years. Before that, I was the dean for humanities at NYU um, for, for four years. Through it all, I have been uh, a professor of the field now known, perhaps not for long, to be known as classical studies. And that's a whole other story. <laughs> but that's a picture of my trajectory. So would you mind maybe just giving us a condensed version of what your career trajectory was? How did you end up becoming the president of the ACLS? Sure. Yeah. The um, like like many people, the the picture may sound you know it, it makes a good story, but it wasn't planned <laughs> from the start. Uh, so I, I feel like I have to underline that because part of my trajectory has been kind of keeping my eyes open to to interesting things that came across the radar and and then being ready to take leaps at certain moments. Um, not always moments my 
friends and colleagues thought were <laughs> were might be optimal. You know, they always involve some risk, but so far they have always paid off really well for me. I've had been so fortunate in having a series of really fascinating jobs and and always among my colleagues, a healthy number of people who are better at what they're doing than what I do, you know, than, than what, how I am at what I do, which is what makes you, at least makes me uh, happy and rewarded in my job. So the condensed version is, I guess I started um, at, at NYU in 2004. I taught for a few years before that at Stanford. And before that, my first academic job as an assistant professor was at the University of Washington in Seattle. So I'd been in a couple of different institutions already by the time I came to NYU. And um, I got tenure, got on a couple of university committees, and it really started with uh, the wonderful historian, uh, Tony Judd, who organized, uh, and sadly um, passed away uh, some years ago, uh, untimely. But um, one, of the, one of the last great services he did for NYU was convene a committee on, uh, on the core curriculum and whether it could serve the university, the undergraduate community of the whole university, not just the College of Arts and Science. So Tony pulled a group together and um, to make a long story short, good things come to those who yell. I got really involved in, in the work of that committee. And when the directorship of the core curriculum that we were working on came open, um, I was tapped for that. Um, and really felt like I couldn't say no because I had made enough noise in this committee to uh, to make my views heard. From there, that you know that really turned out to be the perfect place to 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 move to a deanship because uh, the job of running a core curriculum is is hoovering up the best faculty and convincing uh, chairs across the whole university to give up their best faculty, you know, to serve the interests of the university. So I spent four years in that in the deanship of the humanities, which is a terrific job. Um, because you're really in the mix of departmental work and hiring and curriculum redesign and and program development and and new ideas coming from faculty and grad students. Um, but I, I did begin to think that I was ready for some budget responsibility and and you know I, I had ideas about fundraising and things I really cared about. So when the provostship at the Graduate Center came up, I, I went for that. So um, from there, the final step was having learned so much and and really had my eyes open to the challenges of public university education. Um, it you know I could have spent many years at CUNY. I was really happy there, but when the ACLS presidency came open, it, it was just so compelling to me to imagine now taking over a decade of of being pretty much in the trenches of of university administration and move to a place that would give me some space and a a bit of a platform to really position ACLS as a partner in helping energize change and progress across, uh, across the whole academic landscape. I love hearing about how people focus in on one thing that maybe they didn't intend to in their career, and then it becomes such a big part of the career. So we were curious what the president of the ACLS, what does that role entail? And 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 what is the ACLS? That is another right. question that may be buried in there. I think if you tend to ask humanists and social scientists what you know, your standard faculty person at universities around the country and colleges around the country, they'll probably mention our fellowship programs. And that's a huge piece of what we do. And we deeply value it. Um, we're one of the only funders, you know, with open competitions across the liberal arts, humanities and social sciences, uh, I should say, that aren't connected to themes or, or contemporary problem solving, although we very much value that, but really that, that foster scholarship uh, whether curiosity-driven or problem-driven or however the scholar wants to frame it. So that's a, a huge piece of our work. But um, but ACLS also in, engages 
in, uh, in work helping our learned society members, the academic professional societies like the American Historical Association or MLA. Um, and then, you know, there are 78 of them. So they're, they're, there's a lot of variety there. Uh, but, but I would say the third thing, uh, along with uh, co fellowship competitions, direct support for scholars, work with the societies, and then this, this third issue, this is really what I call, I don't want to sound like a corporate, uh, corporate leader here, but, but change acceleration. You know, the, the humanities and social sciences are, are wonderful, partly because they are the, the repositories and institutionalized expressions of memory and, and of the past. And part of that past is disciplinary formation. Um, those are those are things really embedded in the DNA of the humanities and social sciences, but it's not really embedded in contemporary undergraduates' perceptions, you know, of what a college education is all about. So that's one of several frames. I'll just mention that one for now, in which um, ACLS is trying to work because we want to sustain our, our mission is to sustain humanistic scholarship. And my view is that we can't do that if there are no students in the classrooms, you know, or if there are diminishing numbers of students in the classrooms, which means, of course, as a follow on, fewer graduate student lines, you know, lesser, uh, lesser, fewer numbers of, uh, of faculty searches. So how can we intervene? Uh, and I'm getting to answering your question, and this is one of the things that I, I think about and do every day, you know, how can an organization like ACLS intervene to, uh, to help the humanities and social sciences grow? But I, I have to say, I mean, as, as, um, as president, I mean, I basically set the organization's goals. I have to find the funds to achieve those goals. So I spend a fair amount of time in conversation with our foundation funders, uh, our current foundation partners. I spend time seeking, you know, additional funding, um, and and again, because so much is of our work is um, is change oriented. Uh, I I want to be really sure that I don't sit in my office currently at home and think that I have all the solutions. You know, a lot of the work is again communication, as I said before, listening to people's experiences and what faculty and graduate students and and, and including some undergrads too in all kinds of institutions around the country, you know, what's working for them? What do they want to see amplified? Um, so that uh, takes a lot of time to take in a lot of perspectives, but that's, uh, that captures a lot of what I do. So going back to what you were saying about what the ACLS is known for, you know, we know the ACLS mostly as a grant-making organization, and we know of the ACLS dissertation completion fellowships, but because Lauren and I are also interested in non-faculty careers, we also know of the Public Fellows Program and Leading Edge and Emerging Voices. And so um, I guess we were curious about the backstory to what motivated ACLS to launch each of these programs. Yes, there, the, the public fellows really, I can start with that one because that one no longer, it's no longer an active program in the, in, in terms of active competitions, Leading Edge is its successor program, um, also funded by Mellon. So in a sense, the, the impetus for, for the public fellows programs is what we carried forward in, into Leading Edge. Uh, emerging voice is a little bit is a little bit different. I can say something about that in a second. So, so behind public fellows, I mean, it's really exactly just as you described yourself. We began to see, and I say we, I wasn't here at ACLS at that point, but the, the organization saw clearly that fantastic PhDs, you know, were finishing their degrees, and and there simply weren't the academic jobs there um, to absorb their talents and. 
I would add, just as importantly, we were encountering students um, who and, and their advisors who had decided in the course of their academic career uh, journey through the PhD uh, that they wanted to finish the degree, but they weren't particularly eager to, to become academics. They wanted to move their humanistic skills and knowledge and perspectives into other you know, sectors of the economy or other aspects of the nonprofit world or to do social justice work or, or, you know, or a million other things. And we have always believed that a graduate degree in the humanities and social sciences, just as in the sciences where forever about 50% of hard science PhDs go into industry, as they say. So we've always thought that humanities and social science PhDs have an, a huge amount, an enormous amount to offer the world outside of academia. The recognition that that belief that I just stated was not shared widely by um, by faculty, especially 15 years ago when the program you know was being uh, being put in place, and also that there weren't really there weren't well paved paths from academia you know to the nonprofit world. Um, let alone the for-profit world. So that was the impetus that got ACLS talking with the Mellon Foundation about um, about a potential, about a program, you know, to ease the way um, and and kind of path set or, or path blaze for future generations of students. So Leading Edge continues this work with a focus on um, nonprofits in the social justice space and, and working on issues of racial justice and inequity. The, the program continues, you know, to place people who go on to do, you know, all manner of things, including a few of them go back to academia, which is a, a revolving door we're, we're happy about. We're happy it's part of the program. Um, but we we're really all about valuing whatever path, you know, the, the student or fellow ultimately chooses to pursue. Um, I'll say one more thing about, uh, about the Emerging Voices program. Um, this is really quite different because this is designed really to preserve in the academy um, voices, you know, leading scholarly voices among uh, finishing graduate students, recent PhDs, uh, who might be leaving because of issues of precarity, uh, but who really want to stay in, in academia. So this is designed to give them a foothold of one year in our first two competitions, two years in, in this competition, um, of a spot, a postdoctoral spot that we hope fairly balances, you know, some contributions of teaching to the host university, um, a chance for the person to pursue their own research, and also a chance to participate in um, some professional development activities that prepare them, we hope, that's our aim, for, for what we call um, life as a, as a full scholar. The whole scholar is a phrase we use a lot. Someone who conceives of their role as a faculty member uh, as not only a scholar, not only a scholar teacher, but a scholar teacher leader, someone who's going to lead a department, maybe become a dean, maybe run a humanities center, um, maybe become the, you know, the world's most fantastic graduate advisor, um, but someone who really sees service and governance as part of the job. Yeah, yeah. I, I also noticed that it was um, placing uh, PhDs into um, maybe non, not, not necessarily only faculty roles within academia, but still kind of within the institution. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, you know, since you said public fellows was conceived like 15 years ago, what have you guys learned from the outcomes and evaluations and feedback from that program as well as the two others? 
It's yeah, it's such a good question. And because it just ceased, we're just we're we're still in the process of sifting through our surveys and and doing um, doing analysis. I I mean, for sure, the uh, the message we're getting from from recent participants and and actually participants going all the way back in the years of the program is is that change is needed in doctoral education programs, you know, to uh, and, and doctoral curricula really across the board. Uh, partly change in attitude among faculty. I mean, everybody uh, who, who has had any conversation with a faculty member about, a uh, faculty advisor, about pursuing a role outside academia, I think will attest to some nervousness about it because you are talking to a person who's invested a lot in your own development as a scholar. And you're saying, you know, I'm thinking of taking my talents outside the, the traditional world of scholarship. So there's always a sense of, I think, um, a, a bit of anxiety, you know, personal anxiety there. I don't think we can get rid of that because that kind of goes along with the territory of, of changing tracks. What we do really need to get rid of, and I think we have made um, great strides through this program, and I think shifts in the world more broadly have, have helped, uh, is is eroding that you know, real resistance on the part of faculty, or um, or open scolding, or or denigration. Um, but that those attitudes haven't totally gone away. So so we're still mindful of that, um, and we're also pushing again because of the feedback from public fellows uh, to encourage graduate schools or graduate programs, however they're organized in a given institution, to offer more professional help to graduate students. Uh, with paid positions uh, of, 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 you know, career advising, just like most colleges and universities these days offer to their undergraduates. Um, and, you know, do more than just like have it one afternoon every two weeks for the PhD students, you know, really to have dedicated professionals who, who know their way uh, around that world. And the other, I mean, the other thing I think we hear is from, from public fellows and, and leading edge fellows is the more we can do uh, as an organization to help faculty uh, you know, reconceive their approach to teaching graduate students to understand that not everyone sitting around the seminar table is going to be them you know, in 10 years uh, and really and bake that in to the way they come at, at teaching. Uh, that's a crucial desideratum. Uh, and here, I mean, I'm thinking really on the, uh, on the practical level of faculty in, in a given department or graduate program looking together at collectively at their requirements for graduate students and what they're each you know, individually requiring in a given course and, and making sure that they're not all doing the same thing. You know, when I was a graduate student, it was just, and I'm not blaming my wonderful graduate teachers, it was just kind of the way of the world back in the 90s, 25 to 40 page research papers were just like, that was just what you did out of a seminar and nobody ever dreamed really of doing anything else. Now there are so many more options out there from multimedia projects to podcasts like you're doing. Um, and it's one thing for a student to think, oh, great, I have a faculty advisor or teacher who is willing to say yes if I propose an experiment. But that's not really enough. We need to make this uh, the, the uh, not just the atmosphere or style of experimentation, but certain experiments that now have had quite a number of years of running time, we need to bake them into the regular way in which faculty uh, conceive of their, of their graduate teaching. So yeah, that's a, a few messages. There's, I mean, there's a, a lot to say more about the way graduate schools and, and provosts and presidents and boards of trustees look at graduate programs, you know, to stop evaluating 
programs on how many tenure track jobs their graduates get. Um, that's a complicated, big conversation, but it's definitely one we're we're engaged in and and want to see advance. Uh, and I can't resist uh, mentioning, you know, one more thing. I think when we start digging into these issues of doctoral education and change, and especially career diversification, you know, it's so complicated. It really touches on every piece of the university, you know, the individual faculty member and students, as we've already been discussing, but all the way up to the president and the board of trustees, so that expectations are lined up and there's not, you're not going to be in a situation where a trustee puts the president in an awkward position at a board meeting saying, why am I seeing articles about your historians going off to work for the national park service? I mean, that's not why we're paying for fellowship dollars, is it? But it is, you know? And so to, to get past that question and, and have the trustee member, you know, at their cocktail party at home saying, Hey, to their friends, we're placing our, our PhD students in the National Park Service. Isn't that awesome? You know, to have a bigger conception of what humanists can do and social scientists can do. So then keeping in mind what you've learned so far, how do you see the future of these kinds of grant-making programs? What are they going to be looking for? What is the ACLS looking for? I, you know, I actually, um, I see your question about what we're learning as a question we all need to ask. Um, more regularly and and more systematically. I think it's, um, and and I I have to say, I didn't fully understand all the factors affecting what I'm about to say until I moved into my position at ACLS. But I can, because I was kind of looking at it from the outside as a a person asking for funding um, and not really seeing into how funding decisions are made. One of the really interesting things I learned uh, in the last or have learned in the last uh, couple of few years is how fast the pace is of, of funding and how you know, decisions get made about programs, money gets dispersed, reports are you know, requested and submitted, but then people are already into the next round or already looking to the future. It, it doesn't allow, in my view for, uh, and I'm not alone at all, for really deliberate analysis. Um, funders can fall into... Um, you know, the, the um, kind of uh, hurry up already, you know, like, let's just get to the next, what's the next great idea without, you know, without pausing. And again, this is well known and discussed in the funding world. I'm not saying anything, anything new, um, but it's, it's something that we're, we're thinking really hard about at ACLS that, you know, to the point where we're looking at um, job assignments for our program officers who run our grant competitions or are engaged in our change acceleration programs and saying, okay, without making these people work, you know, eight jobs at once, how can we really carefully analyze uh, and get the most out of the data about our, about our, our funding uh, that we can? And then, just as important uh, step, make sure that it's interesting and compelling and easy to read for a public outside our organization or, you know, our immediate circles. You know, I think about something like the Humanities Indicators at um, the American Academy of Arts and Science. They do amazing work and they do a really good job of making it catchy um, and and easy to access. Um, I'm sure because they're competitive and ambitious and they want to always do better, they would say, we can do better. But I think we could all uh, aim to, to do a better job in our, in our grant making of understanding what we're doing more clearly. Um, I think, too, that when you say, you know, what's the future, um, I worry a bit that, um, that funders, uh, large foundations, you know, people giving big philanthropic gifts, I worry that they see faculty in the humanities and social sciences in particular as as more change resistant than they are. And 
I worry too that because you know universities and colleges right now get, get so much bad press because of high tuition dollars, because of you know the varsity blues scandal, that that there's a kind of impatience with um, with the institution of the college and the university and a, a pull to you know let's look at knowledge production you know elsewhere. Let's look at community centers. Let's look at oral histories. Let's look, you know, and those things are all great. And, and we're involved and we have a, a big NEH grant in publicly engaged humanities where we're running right now. So we really support that work. At the same time, institutions of higher education are such a well-known path uh, and a kind of beacon for people uh, all over the country, all over the world and and need support. So um, so part of my role at ACLS, I think, is, is to, as a kind of middle person in some ways, uh, trumpet the success of, of faculty and, and, and graduate students and administrators at colleges and universities for bringing about change, because there's a ton of good stuff going on out there. Um, so, um, yeah, the, I, I think the um, I would like to see more information about demographics, uh, more like who we are, where we are, um, what the numbers are, numbers of students, uh, undergraduate majors and enrollments. Um, so I hope that that kind of Funding, uh, uh, I hope, will go uh, in um, more generously to those kinds of efforts to help us understand our world. Yeah, so I, I was really struck when you said earlier that you see the ACLS as also like a change accelerator. And in the past few years, I think um, across the nation, there's been a, a greater reckoning with racial and systemic inequalities in higher education as well as other sectors. So I just I wanted to just pose the question, like how is ACLS addressing these systemic inequalities in higher education? Yes, that it, it's, it, it has changed in, in, in terms of a, being a recognizable theme and something that you know, many people are thinking about and a problem we, we feel we all must solve right now. Um, it's, it's, it's too little too late, uh, I, I know, it, but it is, you know, having having been in academia for for twenty five years and more now, um, it is gratifying to see the upswing and and people kind of getting on board again. Too late, but um, but now getting on board with with real change. And I guess I would say before I answer specifically about ACLS, broadly speaking, I, I, I have seen myself a change in the way academics talk about diversity and equity um, and and racial disparities and, and other inequalities that it used to be, um, and I'm sure everyone has their own picture of this, and this is just mine, but, it, but from my point of view, it used to be in the 80s and 90s in academia that um, there was a kind of self-gratified sense among mostly white academics, mostly well-off, largely men, that they were opening the doors more widely to other kinds of people. And um, and I don't want to sound like I'm you know, condescending or, or, or dismissive. I mean, these efforts were hard and hard won, you know, hard fought for. But the idea was very much like we have this, I think of it as like a Gothic building. I was a Princeton undergraduate, so I'll think of like Princeton's Gothic buildings. And people inside saying, we're going to open the doors and windows and you guys, you know, come on in. And we're really going to be as welcoming as we can. You know, come sit here, sit there, we'll give you a cushion. And that we've come such a long way since then. And, and, I, and not everywhere, and it's the progress has been uneven and there's still tons of work to do. But that model, I think, really is not at all the model or the visual I would use now. It's much more, here we are in this space as academics, we're a little bit more diverse, certainly much more diverse in terms of gender than we used to be, getting there on, on, on racial uh, diversity very slowly. 
with some groups, getting there even in some ways more slowly socioeconomically. But we're getting more diverse. We're paying attention to that. We have our eyes on the long game. But as more people come in who are different, the building is changing design. And how are we going to maintain this momentum of change and real transformation at the discipline level, um, at the institutional level, you know, departmental reorganization, massive changes in the way we teach. Uh, and, you know, we want still to have a recognizable space we can call a college or a university, but much more porous and permeable and, and evolving, uh, changing as, as, different, as different people come in and rightly so. So changing what we work on, changing how we teach. Um, so with, with all that in mind, what, what have we done uh, and what are we doing? We certainly focused on diversifying our own staff and continue to make progress there. So kind of very, very internally, we, and, and we talk regularly about, um, about our efforts and we launched, uh, um, as many people did in, in the wake of the events of spring 20, in summer 20, 2020, uh, we launched an anti-racism initiative that we continue to discuss on a quarterly basis, but it infuses a lot of our work, public programming, Certainly, it infuses the way we think about our fellowship competitions, and it has for a long time, but I think it's fair to say we've brought these concerns more front forward. So we've done a lot of outreach to, uh, to HBCUs and have added a large number of HBCUs to our associates network, which is one of our, um, our membership networks. We've invited them at no cost, so there's, there's no, no fee for that membership for the next few years at least. Um, we've also made our applications more accessible we do. Uh, we pay a, more attention these days to uh, to where we're advertising our fellowships and and how we're advertising them and making sure that we have a really, you know, people know we have a quite good track record of institutional and racial diversity um, that um, that people should feel like you know ACLS fellowship competition space is a very welcoming space for for people of all kinds. We transferred our funding for our central fellowship our. ACLS endowment funded fellowship competition. It's just called the ACLS fellowship. Uh, we, we transformed or transferred all that funding uh, only to, uh, to people without tenure when the pandemic started. So I felt very strongly that, um, you know, it's not that, that faculty with tenure have an, have an easy boat ride, you know, wherever they are, but that people without tenure really um, are, 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 were struggling in the, in the conditions of the pandemic. And I'm very proud that in the first year we did we did that change in, in 2020. We made that change. 50% of the ACLS fellows were uh, people not in tenure track jobs or adjuncts or contingent faculty, and that's you know historically uh, quite a, a shift uh, in the organization and um, and one that you know we have to walk a fine line. We don't want to seem like we're endorsing the adjunctification of the faculty or saying that's okay, but but we also are saying the reality is fantastic scholars are, are in contingent positions and we want to do whatever we can to help them get their work done. So that we're very, we're really happy and, and want to continue that work. Um, the other, the other two things I'll mention is we have been thinking and about how, well, I shouldn't even say, put it that way. We've been really baking in uh, thinking along the lines of that visual metaphor I used earlier of, of the Gothic um, Gothic cathedral being changed into a much more fluid structure uh, into an initiative called the Loose Design Workshop for a New Academy. And this was a really interesting, or is, I should say, a really interesting and, and um, 
ongoing experiment in change acceleration. We brought together teams from six schools um, that had representation from an administrator, typically a dean, um, graduate students, uh, non-tenure track faculty members, a faculty member, ideally somebody who'd been a chair or who was serving as chair at that time. And we worked with a design thinking consultant who put us through the ringer of over four days over two months of design thinking exercises. I don't know if, if either of you have done any design thinking work, but they're exercises that are really designed to get people to think in groups fast, um, to be really ruthless with making choices and prioritizing. So what we asked the six groups to do was design solutions to the problem of, you know, the humanities and social sciences are losing students, they're losing respect. What do we do to shore them up and to, and to grow? So that's an ongoing thing. And, and as I said, baked into all our thinking there was um, the, the driving need not just to diversify our, you know, the professoriate or, or uh, recruit more diverse undergraduate students to our classrooms, but to think and embrace and, and make really the driving force behind it, the idea that diverse people in humanistic and social scientific work change the questions you ask and open up the field of investigation. So how do we make the most of that? And how do we make institutions and their reward structures reflect those changes? You can't have a bunch of people doing, again, it's like, goes back to what I said before about, it's great to have a receptive environment for experiments, but you can only do that for so long. And then it's just too exhausting and it's not sustainable. It's not systemic change. So the design workshop is really about pulling all, you know, I can't say all, but a good number of change oriented people who are effective in their own institutions together so that we can exchange information hold each other up and, uh, and make the changes we're talking about, expanding what counts for tenure, changes in doctoral curriculum, you know, systemic across the whole field. So yeah, that, it, that, there, there's one more I can't resist. Uh, I, I can't resist saying about, we have a, a, another Mellon-funded initiative called the Intention Foundry, which is run by my fantastic colleague, uh, Javon Bickerstaff. This is a, um, an initiative that's, that brings in our, our, our learned society members, um, the, the 78 societies over the course of three years, it puts the society directors, executive directors in direct contact and conversation with emerging scholars of color. Um, and it kind of starts from really from the ground up with the, with the moonshot ideas of how to transform fields and disciplines generated by the scholars of color. And then, you know, kind of, figuring out what's what's possible, what's feasible, what would be required to, to carry these activities out. So that's another, that's an explicitly, um, an, an explicitly focused on advancing uh, racial equity and diversity. So with all the work that the ACLS is doing right now, what do you see as the future of the humanities though? And how does the ACLS shape that? Oh, that, yeah. P- and partly through the work we're doing um, and carrying that forward, I would say, I think humanities, the humanities and and, and interpretive social sciences, um, it's populated with people, graduate students, faculty, people working outside the academy who have really great stories to tell. But we don't always do a great job of telling those stories in a way that's publicly interesting. We don't really meet people halfway. Um, And I remember years and years ago, I I was talking with uh, an older uh, colleague about my own field, and uh, and he was lamenting um, undergraduates' kind of decline of 
of interest in, in ancient Greece, ancient Rome. And he said, you know, I, I, I know I could teach, you know, film, I could teach movies about the ancient Mediterranean, or, you know, I could teach a class on, um, on ancient sports or something, you know, that, but I don't want to do that. I, I, you know, why aren't the students really interested in what I have to offer? And we got into a conversation about what it means to meet students in the middle. And by the end of the conversation, I think he, I hope he had some, some ideas about how to do that while staying true to what his passion was. And I had took away kind of renewed respect for the challenge of, especially as you, as one gets older <laughs> and you lose a certain cultural commonality with, with, uh, with at least the kind of more typically aged um, in many institutions, kind of 18 to 22 year old students. So, uh, so it, it can be a difficult challenge to remember always that there's a bigger audience out there for the stories we tell about ourselves and our research and our teaching, but it's doable. And I think it you know, needs to happen. So, so one of the things, you know, ACLS can, can help do is help people tell those stories and figure out really in a fine grained way where they can be told. Um, I'm not talking here about, you know, op-eds in defense of the humanities. We've had tons of them and they don't, they don't really do much. Like they can be good. I'm not criticizing them. I've written some myself, but, um, but I'm really talking about things like as little as this, you know, a faculty member being invited because they've asked to be invited to lunch with the trustees when the trustees come to campus. You know, I'm talking about a graduate student you know, kind of stuck in um, with a dissertation project that she doesn't really like and having a good idea and thinking, what do I do? Not just solving that problem with her faculty advisor, but going to the graduate dean and saying, is there anybody else like me? Oh, wow. It turns out, you know, there are 40 people like me at this university. Let's get together. Let's have a workshop about how we rethink the format of the dissertation because um, I want to do something online, you know, and, and giving people a menu of, of those kinds of tactics and, um, and, and setting ourselves up because we, we had a century long history of being a supporter of, of great humanistic scholarship, making sure people understand we count these kinds of things as supporting the whole scholar and scholarship. Um, but uh, I guess the last thing we'll say is, we, you know, we, we need to think about this at every level from starting out graduate student all the way through um, president provost board of trustees um, we we really need together to change the narrative about about the humanities and higher education and, and emphasize the different things humanities students can do the ways we contribute our knowledge to the world uh, and and how you know what a sad and dry world would be <laughs> without our contributions so to prepare for this interview, I sort of went back to a lot of your recent community messages and read through them because um, we we wanted to get a sense of who you were um, before we met you today. And I really liked what you said in your September 2021 community message when you were talking about curricular reform in doctoral programs in the humanities and uh you say that only half of the graduating students will secure full-time academic jobs. And I really love this line, and I'm gonna quote you. You said, to prepare students for this reality requires more than afternoon workshops, occasional visiting speakers, and a sympathetic year. And I thought that was just like devastatingly well put <laughs> because that's kind of what is going on in a lot of doctoral programs at the moment in terms of curricular reform. So. 
I'm curious about, you know, what are some concrete steps that departments can take um, towards this new curriculum that better suits their students' needs? Oh, it's such a good question, and and it and I'm very aware in answering that um, that right now one of the things I'm hearing from from doctoral students and from faculty is how tired everybody is, and so and just worn out after two years of uncertainty and Zoom and and all the rest. So so I'm thinking very small in 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 respect to that, you know, in, in deference to that, it, because the pressures are real and, and the exhaustion is real. But it's also a moment, you know, where change is possible because the system is feeling more flexible after this, you know, two years of experimentation with teaching and um, uh, in particular. So, uh, so I'll start small, but I really do think this is doable. First of all, the number of graduate programs I've come across in my life where there's never any open conversation about the curriculum where graduate students and faculty are sitting around the same table and talking about it in a non-confrontational way. Um, and the only way to do that in a non-confrontational way, and I know this you know, takes time, but um, I mean, not just a few hours, it takes years. We need to bake that into the regular practice of every program because uh, and I've seen this, I, I, again, something I learned kind of moving into the nonprofit world, uh, why do we have regular meetings? Well, we do it partly because there's work to be done on a regular basis, but we also do it because we need to get to know one another and um, and talk to one another. Under, you know, get used to the personalities, you know, the character quirks that that make people human beings, and and understand that um, people bring their whole humanness to these conversations, and so having a kind of emergency discussion about the graduate curriculum because particular some particular problem needs to be fixed is the worst possible way in which to have a human conversation. So, so the department really has to invest, or the program has to invest in setting up, I would say, kind of two hours, once a semester to start with, where, um, and, or maybe it's twice a semester, where over lunch, um, people sit and say, you know, this is what I like, this is what I wish we would do. Um, really simple exercise like that and just go around the table and, and, uh, and then the faculty need to learn from that and, and, and heed it, not just listen, but heed. The, um, the second thing I think uh, can be done is you know, really the same kind of thing in the classroom, you know, in the graduate seminar, to ask students um, at the beginning of the, of the semester what they're hoping to get out of this um, seminar and uh, I take a page from my my old colleague at at the CUNY Graduate Center, Kathy Davidson, who uh, has suggested, you know, to me even kind of some some frightening or intimidating practices because you know as a faculty member you get used to setting setting the stage right and and writing the syllabus. Kathy actually recommends um, inviting the students to design the syllabus at the very beginning of the class. You know, at the and she says she's done this successfully in community colleges with undergraduates, with master's students, with doctoral students. As I say, you know, I, I first learned about this and I thought, ooh, I don't know if I'd be willing to give up that control, you know, but she absolutely stands by it and says there's no better exercise, even if you're not quite ready to, to promise to hold to it, to do the exercise, to, to say to students, let's spend two weeks where your learning is going to be figuring out what you would want to learn. And when I, when I think through this kind of exercise, I think, you know, this, there really is psychologically no better way to engage people around a table than ask them to figure out what it is they're trying to get out of this experience 
and then have them go through what might be different from what they expected or wanted, but then check in at the end to see, well, how did this... So I'm, I'm really just talking about a system of inviting graduate students into the course design um, and then checking back to see what they what worked and what didn't. A um, couple of other doable things, I think, um, sitting in, in the context of these of regular meetings, getting clear on um, on what the program faculty uh, believe about exams and their efficacy. How important are they? How do they get designed? Um, and hopefully with a view to diminishing their importance, because um, I think increasingly we're seeing that uh, that a graduate program is a, pl a place to really unleash pe people's creativity and that the kind of testing of knowledge of mastery makes less and less sense, especially as we want to bring in a more and more diverse population into our graduate programs. And when I say diverse, I'm also talking about people crossing disciplines. So people who majored in religion and then realized they want to go to graduate school in political science, they're just not going to be able to pass an exam in their second year of graduate school, typically um, in, in, in a traditional mode. So just really rethinking uh, in conversation together what the purpose of exams are and uh, what the purpose of a dissertation is too. But I, but I, I'm just like these are just iterations on the basic, crucial move, which is to create you know, regular moments uh, and time for faculty and graduate students to talk together to co-create the curriculum together. It sounds it's a lot harder than it sounds. <laughs> I know, but. <laughs> but, and of course you need to have the requisite, you know, you've got to have support from the graduate dean. You've got to have it. So it's, it's, it's small, but it's not simple. I yeah. think even just having these kinds of ideas is helpful because I think sometimes programs just don't even know where to start. Um, so, but I think June wanted to say something. Sorry. No, it's okay. No. Uh, yeah. It's so fascinating too. Cause I think, there are there's certain kind of impulses towards conservatism, right, in certain programs. So it's like, what is going to catalyze departments to hold these conversations? Like, I think these ideas are really important and really stimulating. But but then it's like how how to actually get programs to implement collaborative rethinking of the curriculum is is my question. We have talked about so so I should we're developing a a, a kind of booklet or pamphlet or small book, I guess, that, that um, it's still under development this year. It won't be done until the end of the calendar year. We're calling it, um, the working title anyway, is Before Day One, um, because the idea is that preparing people to make the most out of doctoral education um, has to start, you know, before that, <laughs> before in the orientation, when they come to visit the graduate program or, or talk with the people, the faculty um, in the in the programs they're applying to. So it, it starts with, you know, how to with the application process basically and, and, and how to design that to, to increase diversity and, and equity to um, increase intellectual innovation. As I, as I said a minute ago, talking about, about discipline change. Um, so how to, how to make the program inviting and responsive to all kinds of, you know, of applicants and then how do you want to orient them? And that involves a conversation straight away of like, you know, of the realities of employment and, and getting people to think in a constructive way um, not about a plan A and a plan B, but, you know, multiple plans um, for employment post-PhD. So uh, so we hope that that will be helpful as a one concrete answer or one concrete contribution. We're not alone, you know, books by uh, by um, uh, Lenny Casuto, um, Lenny Casuto and Bob Weiss book have written a great book called The New PhD. 
Um, there, Katina Rogers is a terrific book on, uh, you know, the, the, there are well-known books out there making really solid contributions. I, so one of the things that we have kicked around at ACLS and, and we're still thinking this through is um, how can our learned societies, um, MLA, AHA, um, SCS, the Society for Classical Studies, my own society and, and, and others, how can they get engaged in a way that's not moralistic or scolding, um, not punitive, but that's constructive in you know, kind of moving department by department, graduate program by graduate program, giving programs recognition when they do ad- adopt best practices. So this gets dicey because, you know, it's a learned society doesn't want to lose its members. Um, it wants to serve its members. Um, it's the people I work with, you know, they're, they're quite humble. They, they don't consider themselves the ones waving the finger and, or, or saying, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, but they do want to walk a line um, between that undesirable behavior and direction setting behavior and, and kind of setting best practices and, you know, holding people to them is a, is a hard, hard phrase because with what, you know, what's the punishment we don't want to think about again uh, about punitive terms, but, um, but we are thinking with the society directors about how they can work, you know, discipline by discipline, field by field, area study by area study, uh, to maybe through example, kind of lifting up some programs that are exceptionally good in some areas. Uh, and by doing this, hopefully empowering, especially graduate students and, and change-oriented faculty to find you know, confidence in numbers so they can go back to their colleagues after an annual meeting, whether it's virtual or in person, and say, you know, that change I've been fighting for over the last year, like 20 other departments have done it and they're doing really well. You know, that, that kind of knowledge sharing that can empower people. So, you know, we started talking about this whole industry of advice giving for students about the humanities PhD, and there are a lot of lovely books. Uh, but we were wondering if you have any advice for grad students that maybe they haven't heard something uh, that the books haven't touched on that you think is maybe a gap in what's been said. Oh, I think it, it, I, there are so many great people working in this area. I, I doubt I'll say something that hasn't been said, but um but I would say you're not alone. You know, you, you are definitely not alone. And whether it's within your program or your graduate school dean or your divisional dean or dean of arts and science or, you know, wellness center or center for teaching and learning or humanities center or an organization like your disciplinary society or a group on the internet that's gathering uh, through the humanities commons or, you know, a group on Facebook that, there's a lot of support out there. And, um, and I emphasize this because, you know, I don't think I'm alone in having felt when I was a graduate student that it was all on me and, and the struggles I was going through, not that I thought I was particularly singular or distinctive, but that I really felt often, and I had very supportive graduate program and, and graduate faculty and, and nice fellow students, but I still sp- spent, I think, too much time thinking, I'm struggling with this chapter. I don't want to admit it to anybody. I, I, I can fix this myself, right? Ugh. And then, you know, three months later thinking, oh, I, I think I've fixed it. But wow, that was a lot of wasted time and energy. So, so that's why I emphasize this. You know, you're not alone. Um, ask for help. People love offering advice, especially teachers. <laughs> so it might not be the advice you want. So ask somebody else, you know, and, and get multiple perspectives. Create a community of, of, of fellow problem solvers around you. 
Do you have any advice for the advice givers? Since you said professors and teachers really love to give advice, but any advice for the advice givers? I think, yeah, that this this is a good one. I, I think that it, um, and, and again, this is a function of, of getting older. I, I turned 50 uh, fairly recently <laughs> and, and, it, and it hit me that, um, that, I, I had to be wary myself of falling into a pun- pontificating mode <laughs> um, because learning from, you know, the young, so to speak, you know, learning from the upcoming emerging generation, hearing them speak uh, and, uh, and, and, and realizing that, um, that the world is changing really rapidly. And so any kind of effective change or, or any effective advice, you know, um, goes back to what I was saying before, you know, it has to, you have, we have to meet people halfway. So I would say the more we can do in centering the experiences, the voices and, and the opinions um, of the people really in the trenches, which is the upcoming generation, the better. Uh, and it's easy to forget to do it because you think, oh, I, I, I know what it's like. I can, you know, I can, I can think on my, my own and, and come up with a plan, but um but plans are always better when they engage at every step with the people the plan is designed to help. <laughs> and the pace of work, um, the pressure of other things, it's, it's easy, easy to let that drop off the, the radar, but it's got it's to stay on. Thank you. And I guess our last, um, you know, lastly, we just wanted to give you some space. Is there anything else you'd like to add um, that you'd want to tell people? Any positions you want to justify? arguments you want to make? Oh, I think uh, the um, two things, the, the, the division, or I've seen a division or kind of binary opposition between justifying the humanities or liberal arts education more broadly in terms of work preparation or career preparation versus, you know, fulfilling one's curiosities, making the most of oneself. And if I could if I could wave a magic wand, I'd probably want to change a thousand things. But this is one thing I would really like to shake up um, because one of the central uh, pieces, I think, elements of of any learning experience, regardless of how old you are, but um, whether it's undergrad or or graduate school or or even attending some workshop on improving one's pedagogy when you're a faculty member with 30 years experience, any learning experience, it's unpredictable. It involves... Uh, it, it, it transforms and that change, uh, you know, we, we can't tell at the beginning of a class how the class is going to go. You can, you've, we've all had this experience. You, know, you teach the same class two years running with pretty much the same types of students and it's a completely different experience. So, uh, so I think you know, these, the fixed categories or frames within which we talk about uh, the point or the goal or the outcomes or the mission uh, of, an educa- of, of a college university education at any stage uh, I, I really w- wish we wouldn't talk about it in that way. Um, of course, it imme- immediately raises questions of, well, how will we measure it? And one of my answers is precisely in the diversity of answers um, of, you know, of what people get out of, out of school, um, to use that word you know, to cover a lot of, a lot of situations. Uh, and, and I have a friend who, who, um, who half jokingly, half seriously, modified his own school's uh, teaching evaluations to make them Socratic. Um, so he was wanted to ask his students, 
you know, do you understand now at the end of the class that you actually know nothing? You know, do you understand how little you know? <laughs> um, because there's so much more to learn. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I, I think that he had something there that we're all too certain, you know, that, um, that we can measure what is for me fundamentally um, really unmeasurable when it comes to especially humanistic education. Uh, that doesn't mean we have to be, you know, vague and, and overpromise about saving the world um, or, or, you know, uh, making our society more just, although I do think humanistic educations help, help advance those, those missions. Um, but I think we can value you know, the sheer diversity and amount of creativity and wherewithal, the number of tools people feel they can bring to the world after they've finished a particular course of education uh, without trying to define what those tools uh, are, or, and probably not even using the word tools, which I, sh I shouldn't have used. I could rethink my own terminology there. Um, so, so yeah, the bi that binary and, and the way we measure education, I really wish we could change the conversation about that. Um, and, and the other is, is um, I, I think a lot about, uh, and we touched on this earlier, what the role of a scholar is. Um, and I think we have a lot of conversation to have in the coming you know, couple of years and longer about faculty governance and, and how we teach graduate students from the very start. This is part of the Before Day One project to think of part of their job as being running the university, running the college. That I think we can do in a doctoral curriculum in a way that would prepare people really well for jobs inside and outside academia. So. Um, this is really about kind of um, institutional expertise. You know, how do institutions run? How do we make them serve our goals? Uh, so I would, I, I think we have a, a lot to say uh, and a lot to do in, in that area as well. This podcast was written, produced, and hosted by Lauren Burrell-Cox and June Key, with support from the University of California Humanities Research Institute and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere. The cover art was designed by Kathleen Martin and Amy Owen at UF Class Communications. Special thanks to Barbara Mennell, Kelly A. Brown, and David Theo Goldberg for their support and guidance.